Saint Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter Seven: A Rescue. D'Arblay and his two companions had been engaged for ten days in visiting the Huguenots within a circuit of four or five leagues round Toulouse, when they learned that their movements had been reported to the authorities there. They had one day halted as usual in a wood, when the soldier on the lookout ran in and reported that a body of horsemen, some forty or fifty strong, were approaching at a gallop by the road from the city. "'They may not be after us,' D'Arblay said, "'but at any rate they shall not catch us napping.' Girths were hastily tightened, armor buckled on, and all took their places in their saddles. It was too late to retreat, for the wood was a small one, and the country around open. As the horsemen approached the wood, they slackened their speed and presently halted, facing it. "'Some spies tracked us here,' D'Arblay said. "'But it is one thing to trace the game, another to capture it. Let us see what these gentlemen of Toulouse are going to do. I have no doubt that they know our number accurately enough, and if they divide, as I hope they will, we shall be able to give them a lesson.' This was evidently the intention of the Catholics. After a short pause, an officer trotted off with half the troop, making a circuit to come down behind the wood and cut off all retreat. As they moved off, the Huguenots could count that there were twenty-five men in each section. "'The odds are only great enough to be agreeable,' D'Arblay said. "'It is not as it was outside Paris, when they were ten to one against us. Counting our servants, we mustered twenty-two, while that party in front are only four stronger, for that gentleman with the long robe is probably an official of their parliament, or a city councillor, and need not be counted.' We will wait a couple of minutes longer until the other party is fairly out of sight, and then we will begin the dance. A minute or two later he gave the word, and the little troop moved through the trees until nearly at the edge of the wood. Now, gentlemen, forward, D'Arblay said, and God aid the right. As in a compact body, headed by the three gentlemen, they burst suddenly from the wood, there was a shout of dismay, and then loud orders from the officer of the troop, halted a hundred and fifty yards away. The men were sitting carelessly on their horses. They had confidently anticipated taking the Huguenots alive, and thought of nothing less than that the latter should take the offensive. Scarcely had they got their horses into motion before the Huguenots were upon them. The conflict lasted but a moment. Half the Catholics were cut down. The rest, turning their horses, rode off at full speed. The Huguenots would have followed them, but D'Arblay shouted to them to halt. "'You have only done half your work yet,' he said. "'We have the other party to deal with.' Only one of his Huguenots had fallen shot through the head by a pistol discharged by the officer, who had himself been a moment later run through by D'Arblay, at whom the shot had been aimed. Gathering his men together, the Huguenot leader rode back, and when halfway through the wood they encountered the other party, whose officers had at once ridden to join the party he had left, when he heard the pistol shot that told him they were engaged with the Huguenots. Although not expecting an attack from an enemy they deemed overmatched by their comrades, the troop, encouraged by their officer, met the Huguenots stoutly. The fight was for a short time obstinate. Broken up by the trees, it resolved itself into a series of single combats. The Huguenot men-at-arms, however, were all trained soldiers, while their opponents were rather accustomed to the slaughter of defenseless men and women than to combat with the men-at-arms. Coolness and discipline soon asserted themselves. Francois and Philip both held their ground abreast of their leader, and Philip, by cutting down the lieutenant, brought the combat to a close. His followers, on seeing their officer fall, at once lost heart, and those who could do so turned their horses and rode off. These were hotly pursued, and six were overtaken and cut down. Eight had fallen in the conflict in the wood. 
"'That has been a pretty sharp lesson,' Darblay said, as leaving the pursuit to his followers, he reined in his horse at the edge of the wood. "'You both did right gallantly, young sirs. It is no slight advantage in a melee of that kind to be strong in officers. The fellows fought stoutly for a short time. Had it not been for your dispatching their officer, Monsieur Fletcher, we should not have finished with them so quickly. It was a right-down blow, and heartily given, and fell just at the joint of the gorget. "'I am sorry that I killed him,' Philip replied. He seemed a brave gentleman, and was not very many years older than I am myself. "'Well, he drew it upon himself,' Darblay said. "'If he had not come out to take us, he would be alive now. "'Well, as soon as our fellows return, we will move round to Merlin Court on the other side of the town. "'There are several of our friends there, and it is the last place we have to visit. "'After this skirmish, we will find the neighbourhood too hot for us. "'It is sure to make a great noise.' and at the first gleam of the sun on helm or breastplate, some Catholic or other will hurry off to Toulouse with the news. In future, we had best take some of the men-at-arms with us when we pay our visits, or we may be caught like rats in a trap. Making a circuit of twenty miles, they approached Morlancourt that evening, and establishing themselves as usual in a wood, remained quiet there next day. After nightfall, Darblay rode off, taking with him Francois and five of his own men, and leaving Philip in command of the rest. The gold and jewels they had gathered had been divided into three portions, and the bags placed in the holsters of the saddles of the three lackeys, as these were less likely to be taken than their masters, and if one were captured, a portion only of the contributions would be lost. Darblay had arranged that he would not return that night, but would sleep at the chateau of the gentleman he was going to visit. I will get him to send around to our other friends in the morning. The men will return when they see that all is clear. Send them back to meet us at the chateau tomorrow night. The five men returned an hour after they set out, and reported that all was quiet at Morlancourt, and that the sure d'Arblay had sent a message to Philip to move a few miles farther away before morning, and to return to the wood soon after nightfall. Philip gave the men six hours to rest themselves and their horses. Then they mounted and rode eight miles farther from Toulouse, halting before daybreak in a thick copse standing on high ground, commanding a view of a wide tract of country. Two of the troopers were sent off to buy provisions in a village half a mile away. Two were placed on watch. Some of the others lay down for another sleep, while Pierre dressed the wounds that five of the men had received in the fight. At twelve o'clock, one of the lookouts reported that he could see, way out on a plain, a body of horsemen. Philip at once went to examine them for himself. There must be some two hundred of them, I should say, by the size of the clump, he remarked to the soldier. About that, I should say, sir. I expect they are hunting for us, Philip said. They must have heard from some villager that we were seen to ride round this way the day before yesterday, or they would hardly be hunting in this neighborhood for us. It is well we moved in the night. I wish the Sieur d'Arblay and the Count de la Ville were with us. No doubt they were hidden away as soon as a troop was seen, but one is never secure against treachery. Philip was restless and uncomfortable all day, and walked about the wood impatiently, longing for night to come. As soon as it was dark, they mounted and rode back to the wood near Merlincourt. The five men were at once sent off to the chateau where they had left their leaders. "'That is a pistol shot!' Pierre exclaimed some twenty minutes after they had left. "'I did not hear it. Are you sure, Pierre?' "'Sure, sir. At least I will not swear that it was a pistol. It might have been an arquebus, but I will swear that it was a shot.' "'To your saddle, men,' Philip said. "'A pistol shot has been heard, and it may be that your comrades have fallen into an ambush. Advance to the edge of the wood and be ready to dash out to support them should they come.' But a quarter of an hour passed, and there was no sound to break the stillness of the evening. Shall I go into the village and find out what has taken place, Monsieur Fletcher? I will leave my iron cap and breast and back pieces here. I shall not want to fight, but to run, and a hare could not run in these iron pots. Do, Pierre. We shall be ready to support you if you are chased. 
If I am chased by half a dozen men, I may run here, sir. If by a strong force I shall strike across the country, trust me to double and throw them off the scent. If I am not back here in an hour, it will be that I am taken, or I have had to trust to my heels, and you will find me in the last case tomorrow morning at the wood where we halted today. If I do not come soon after daybreak, you will know that I am either captured or killed. Do not delay for me longer, but act as it seems best to you. Pierre took off his armor and sped away in the darkness, going at a trot that would speedily take him to the village. Dismount and stand by your horses, Philip ordered. We may want all their strength. Half an hour later, Pierre returned panting. I have bad news, sir. I have prowled around the village, which is full of soldiers, and listened to their talk through open windows. The Sieur d'Arblay, Monsieur Francois, and the owner of the chateau and his wife were seized and carried off to Toulouse this morning, soon after daybreak. By what I heard, one of the servants of the chateau was a spy sent by the council of Toulouse to watch the doings of its owner, and as soon as Monsieur d'Arblay arrived there last night, he stole out and sent a messenger to Toulouse. At daybreak the chateau was surrounded, and they were seized before they had time to offer resistance. The troop of horse we saw have all day been searching for us, and went back before nightfall to Morlancourt, thinking that we were sure to be going there some time or other to inquire after our captain. The five men you sent away were taken completely by surprise, and all were killed, though not without a tough fight. A strong party are lying in ambush with arquebuses, making sure that the rest of the troop will follow the five they surprised. You were not noticed, Pierre, or pursued? No, sir. There were so many men about in the village that one more stranger attracted no attention. Then we may remain here safely for half an hour, Philip said. The conversation had taken place a few paces from the troop. Philip now joined his men. The Sieur d'Arblay and Count Francois have been taken prisoners. Your comrades fell into an ambush and have, I fear, all lost their lives. Dismount for half an hour, men, while I think over what is best to be done. Keep close to your horses, so as to be in readiness to mount instantly if necessary. One of you take my horse. Do you come with me, Pierre? Oh, this is a terrible business, lad, he went on as they walked away from the others. We know what will be the fate of my cousin and Monsieur d'Arblay. They will be burnt or hung as heretics. The first thing is, how are we to get them out, and also, if possible, the gentleman and his wife who were taken with them? We have but ten of the men-at-arms left, sir, and four of them are so wounded that they would not count for much in a fight. There are the two other lackeys and myself, so we are but fourteen in all. If we had arrived in time, we might have done something, but now they are firmly lodged in the prison at Toulouse. I see not that we can accomplish anything. Philip fell into silence for some minutes. Then he said, Many of the councillors and members of Parliament live, I think, in villas outside the wall. If we seize a dozen of them, appear before the city and threaten to hang or shoot the whole of them if the four captives are not released, we might succeed in getting our friends into our hands, Pierre. That is so, sir. There really seems a hope for us in that way. Then we will lose no time. We will ride at once for Toulouse. When we get near the suburbs, we will seize some countrymen and force him to point out to us the houses of the principal councillors and the members of their parliament. These we will pounce upon and carry off, and at daybreak will appear with them before the walls. We will make one of them signify to their friends that if any armed party sallies out through the gates or approaches us from behind, it will be the signal for the instant death of all of our captives. Now, let us off at once. The party mounted without delay and rode towards Toulouse. This rich and powerful city was surrounded by handsome villas and chateaux, the abode of wealthy citizens and persons of distinction. At the first house at which they stopped, Philip, with Paris and two of the men-at-arms, dismounted and entered. 
It was the abode of a small farmer, who cultivated vegetables for the use of the townsfolk. He had retired to bed with his family, but upon being summoned came downstairs trembling, fearing that his late-night visitors were bandits. "'No harm will be done you if you obey our orders,' Philip said. "'But if not, we shall make short work of you. I suppose you know the houses of most of the principal persons who live outside the walls?' "'Assuredly I do, my lord. There is the President of the Parliament, and three or four of the principal councillors, and the Judge of the High Court, and many others, all living within a short mile of this spot. Well, I require you to guide us to their houses. There will be no occasion for you to show yourself, nor will anyone know that you have had aught to do with the matter. If you attempt to escape, or to give the alarm, you will without scruple be shot. If, on the other hand, we are satisfied with your work, you will have a couple of crowns for your trouble. The man, seeing that he had no choice, put a good face on it. I am ready to do as your lordship commands, he said. I have no reason for good will toward any of these personages, who will as harshly regard us as if we were dirt under their feet. Shall we go first to the nearest of them? No, we will first call on the President of the Parliament, and then the Judge of the High Court, then the Councillors in the order of their rank. We will visit ten in all, and see that you choose the most important. Pari, you will take charge of this man, and ride in front of us. Keep your pistol in your hand, and shoot him through the head if he shows signs of trying to escape. You will remain with him when we enter the houses. Have you any rope, my man? Yes, my lord. I have several long ropes with which I bind the vegetables on my cart when I go to market. That will do. Pierre accompanied the man when he went to his shed. On his return with the ropes, Philip told the men-at-arms to cut them into lengths of eight feet, and to make a running noose at one end of each. When this was done, they again mounted and moved on. When we enter the houses, he said to the two other lackeys, you will remain without with Pierre, and will take charge of the first four prisoners we bring out. Put the nooses round their necks and draw them tight enough to let the men feel that they are there. Fasten the other ends to your saddles, and warn them if they put up their hands to throw off the nooses, you will spur your horses into a gallop. That threat will keep them quiet enough. In a quarter of an hour they arrived at the gate of a large and handsome villa. Philip ordered his men to dismount and fasten up their horses. You will remain here in charge of the horses, he said to the lackeys, and then with the men-at-arms he went up to the house. Two of them were posted at the back entrance, two at the front, with orders to let no one issue out. Then, with his dagger, he opened the shutters of one of the windows, and followed by the other six men, entered. The door was soon found, and opening it they found themselves in a hall where a hanging light was burning. Several servants were asleep on the floor. These started up with exclamations of alarm at seeing seven men with drawn swords. Silence, Philip said sternly, or this will be your last moment. Roger and Jules, do you take each of these lackeys by the collar? That is right. Now put your pistols to their heads. Now, my men, lead us at once to your master's chamber. Eustace, light one of these torches on the wall at the lamp and bring it along with you. Henry, do you also come with us? The rest of you stay here and guard the lackeys. Make them sit down. If any move, run them through without hesitation. At this moment an angry voice was heard shouting above. What is all this disturbance about? If I hear another sound, I will discharge you all in the morning. Philip gave a loud and derisive laugh, which had the effect he had anticipated, for directly afterwards a man in a loose dressing-gown ran into the halls. "'What does this mean, you rascals?' he shouted angrily as he entered. Then he stopped, petrified with astonishment. "'It means this,' Philip said, leveling a pistol at him, "'that if you move a step, you are a dead man.' "'You must be mad!' the president gasped. "'Do you know who I am?' "'Perfectly, sir.' You are president of the infamous parliament at Toulouse. 
I am a Huguenot officer, and you are my prisoner. You need not look so indignant. Better men than you have been dragged from their homes to prison and death by your orders. Now it is your turn to be a prisoner. I might, if I chose, set fire to this chateau and cut the throats of all in it. But we do not murder in the name of God. We will leave that to you. Take this man away with you, Eustace. I gave him into your charge. If he struggles or offers the least resistance, stab him to the heart. You will at least give me time to dress, sir, the president said. Not a moment, Philip replied. The night is warm, and you will do very well as you are. As for you, he went on turning to the servants, you will remain quiet until morning, and if any of you dare to leave the house, you shall be slain without mercy. You can assure your mistress that she will not be long without the society of your master, for in all probability he will be returned safe and sound before midday tomorrow. One of you may fetch your master's cloak, since he seems to fear the night air. The doors were opened, and they issued out, Philip bidding the servants close and bar them behind them. When they reached the horses, the prisoner was handed over to Darblay's lackey, who placed the noose round his neck and gave him warning as Philip had instructed him. Then they set off, Pari with the guide again leading the way. Before morning, they had ten prisoners in their hands. In one or two cases, the servants had attempted opposition, but they were speedily overpowered, and the captures were all effected without loss of life. The party then moved away about a mile, and the prisoners were allowed to sit down. Several of them were elderly men, and Philip picked these out by the light of two torches they had brought from the last house, and ordered the ropes to be removed from their necks. "'I should regret, gentlemen,' he said, "'the indignity that I had been forced to place upon you had you been other than you are. It is well, however, that you should have felt, though in a very slight degree, something of the treatment that you have all been instrumental in inflicting upon blameless men and women, whose only fault was that they chose to worship God in their own way.' You may thank your good fortune at having fallen into the hands of one who has no dear friends murdered in the prisons of Toulouse. There are scores of men who would have strung you up without mercy, thinking it a righteous retribution for the pitiless cruelties of which the Parliament of Toulouse has been guilty. Happily for you, though I regard you with loathing as pitiless persecutors, I have no personal wrongs to avenge. Your conscience will tell you that, fallen as you have into the hands of Huguenots, you could only expect death. But it is not for the purpose of punishment that you have been captured. You are taken as hostages. My friends, the Count de la Ville and the Sieur d'Arblay, were yesterday carried prisoners into Toulouse, and with them Monsieur de Morville, whose only fault was that he had afforded them a night's shelter. His innocent wife was also dragged away with him. You, sir, he said to one of the prisoners, appear to me to be the oldest of the party. At daybreak you will be released, and will bear to your colleagues in the city the news that these nine persons are prisoners in my hands. You will state that if any body of men approaches this place from any quarter, these nine persons will at once be hung up to the branches above us. You will say that I hold them as hostages for the four prisoners, and that I demand that these shall be sent out here, with their horses and the arms of my two friends, and under the escort of two unarmed troopers. These gentlemen here will, before you start, sign a document ordering the said prisoners to at once be released, and will also sign a solemn undertaking, which will be handed over to Monsieur de Mourville, pledging themselves that should he and his wife choose to return to their chateau, no harm shall ever happen to them, and no accusation of any sort in the future be brought against them. I may add that should at any time this guarantee be broken, I shall consider it my duty the moment I hear of the event to return to this neighborhood, and assuredly I will hang the signatories of the guarantee over their own doorposts, and will burn their villas to the ground. I know the value of oaths sworn to the Huguenots, but in this case I think they will be kept, for I swear to you, and I am in the habit of keeping my oaths, that if you break your undertaking, I will not break mine. As soon as it was daylight, Paris produced from his saddlebag an inkhorn, paper, and pens, 
and the ten prisoners signed their name to an order for the release of the four captives. They then wrote another document to be handed by their representative to the governor, begging him to see that the order was executed, informing him of the position they were in, and that their lives would certainly be forfeited unless the prisoners were released without delay. They also earnestly begged him to send out orders to the armed forces who were searching for the Huguenots, bidding them make no movement whatever until after midday. The counsellor was then mounted on a horse and escorted by two of the men-at-arms to within a quarter of a mile of the nearest gate of the city. The men were to return with his horse. The counsellor was informed that ten o'clock was the limit given for the return of the prisoners, and that unless they had by the hour arrived it would be supposed that the order for their release would not be respected, and in that case the nine hostages would be hung forthwith, and that in the course of a night or two another batch would be carried off. Philip had little fear, however, that there would be any hesitation upon the part of those in the town in acting upon the order signed by so many important persons, for the death of the president and several of the leading members of the parliament would create such an outcry against the governor, by their friends and relatives, that he would not venture to refuse the release of four prisoners of minor importance in order to save their lives. After the messenger had departed, Philip had the guarantee for the safety of Monsieur de Mireville and his wife drawn up and signed in duplicate. One of these documents, he said, I shall give to Monsieur de Mireville, the other I shall keep myself, so that if this solemn guarantee is broken, I shall have this as justification for the execution of the perjured men who signed it. The time passed slowly. Some of the prisoners walked anxiously and impatiently to and fro, looking continually towards the town. Others sat in gloomy silence, too humiliated at their present position even to talk to one another. The soldiers, on the contrary, were in high spirits. They rejoiced at the prospect of the return of their two leaders, and they felt proud of having taken part in such an exploit as the capture of the chief men of the dreaded parliament of Toulouse. Four of them kept a vigilant guard over the prisoners. The rest ate their breakfast with great gusto and laughed and joked at the angry faces of some of their prisoners. It was just nine o'clock when a small group of horsemen were seen in the distance. "'I think there are six of them, sir,' Eustace said. "'That is the right number, Eustace. The lady is doubtless riding behind her husband.' Two men are the escort, and the other is no doubt the counsellor we released, who is now acting as guide to the spot. Bring my horse, Paris. And mounting, Philip rode off to meet the party. He was soon able to make out the figures of Francois and D'Arblay, and putting his horse to a gallop was speedily alongside them. What miracle is this? Monsieur D'Arblay asked after the first greeting was over. At present we are all in a maze. We were in separate dungeons, and the prospect looked as hopeless as it could well do. When the doors opened, and an officer followed by two soldiers bearing our armor and arms, entered and told us to attire ourselves. What was meant, we could not imagine. We supposed we were going to be led before some tribunal, but why they should arm us before taking us there was more than we could imagine. We met in the courtyard of the prison, and were stupefied at seeing our horses saddled and bridled there, and Monsieur de Mureville and his wife already mounted. Two unarmed troopers were also there, and this gentleman, who said sourly, Mount, sirs, I am going to lead you to your friends. We looked at each other to see if we were dreaming, but you may imagine we were not long in leaping into our saddles. This gentleman has not been communicative. In fact, by his manner, I should say he is deeply disgusted at the singular mission with which he was charged. And on the right here, Francois, Monsieur de Mireville, and myself have exhausted ourselves in conjectures as to how this miracle has come about. Wait two or three minutes longer, Philip said with a smile. When you get to yonder trees, you will receive an explanation. Francois and Monsieur d'Arblay gazed in surprise at the figures of nine men, all in scanty raiment, wrapped up in cloaks and evidently guarded by the men-at-arms, who set up a joyous shout as they rode in. Monsieur de Mireville uttered an exclamation of astonishment as he recognized the dreaded personages collected together in such a plight. Monsieur de Mireville, 
Philip said. I believe you know this gentleman by sight. Monsieur d'Arblay and Francois, you are not so fortunate as to be acquainted with them, and I have pleasure in introducing you to the President of the Parliament of Toulouse, the Judge of the High Court, and other councillors, all gentlemen of consideration. It has been my misfortune to have had to treat these gentlemen with scant courtesy, but the circumstances left me no choice. Monsieur de Mireville, here is a document, signed by these nine gentlemen, giving a solemn undertaking that you and Madame shall be in future permitted to reside in your chateau without the slightest let or hindrance, and that you shall suffer no molestation whatever, either on account of this affair or on the question of religion. I have a duplicate of this document, and have on my part given an undertaking that if its terms are broken, I will at once, whatever inconvenience to myself, return to this neighborhood, hang these ten gentlemen if I can catch them, and at any rate burn the chateau to the ground. Therefore, I think, as you have their undertaking and mine, you can without fear return home. But this, of course, I leave to yourselves to decide. Gentlemen, you are now free to return to your homes, and I trust this lesson, that we on our part can strike if necessary, will have some effect in moderating your zeal for persecution. Without a word, the President and his companions walked away in a body. The troopers began to jeer and laugh, but Philip held up his hand for silence. There need be no extra scorn, he said. These gentlemen have been sufficiently humiliated. And you really fetched all these good gentlemen from their beds? Tarblay said, bursting into a fit of laughter. Why, it was worth being taken prisoner were it only for the sake of seeing them. They look like a number of old owls suddenly disturbed by daylight, some of them round-eyed with astonishment, some of them hissing menacingly. By my faith, Philip, it will go hard with you if you ever fall into the hands of these worthies. But a truce to jokes. We owe you our lives, Philip, of that there is not a shadow of doubt, though I have no more fear than another of death in battle. I own that I have a dread of being tortured and burned. It was a bold stroke thus to carry off the men who have been the leaders of the persecution against us. There was nothing in the feat, if it can be called a feat, Philip said. Of course, directly we heard that you had been seized and carried into Toulouse, I cast about for the best means to save you. To attempt it by force would have been simple madness, and any other plan would have required time, powerful friends, and a knowledge of the city. And even then we should probably have failed to get you out of prison. This being so, it was evident that the best plan was to seize some of the citizens of importance, who might serve as hostages. There was no difficulty in finding out from a small cultivator who were the principal men living outside the walls, and their capture was as easy a business. Scarcely a blow was struck, and no lives lost in capturing the whole of them. But some of the men are missing, Darblay said. Yes, five of your men, I am sorry to say. On getting back to the wood after dark, I sent them as you ordered, to fetch you from Monsieur de Mireville's, but of course you had been captured before that, and they fell into an ambush that was laid for them, and were all killed. Ah, oh, that is a bad business, Philip. Well, Monsieur de Mireville, will you go with us, or will you trust in this safeguard? In the first place, you have not given me a moment's opportunity of thanking this gentleman, not only for having saved the lives of my wife and myself, but for the forethought and consideration with which he has, in the midst of his anxiety for you and Monsieur de la Ville, shown for us who were entirely strangers to him. Be assured, Monsieur Fletcher, that we are deeply grateful. I hope that sometime in the future, should peace ever again be restored to France, we may be able to meet you again, and express more warmly the obligations we feel towards you. Madame de Mireville added a few words of gratitude, and then D'Arblay broke in. De Mireville, you must settle at once whether to go with us or to stay on the faith of this safeguard. We have no such protection, and if we linger here we shall be having half a dozen troops of horse after us. 
you may be sure they will be sent off as soon as the president and his friends reach the city. And if we were caught again, we should be in an even worse plight than before. Do you talk it over with madame, and while you are doing so, Francois and I will drink a flask of wine, and eat anything we can find here, for they forgot to give us breakfast before they sent us off, and it is likely we shall not have another opportunity for some hours. What do you think, Monsieur Fletcher? Monsieur de Mireville said, after speaking for a few minutes with his wife. Will they respect this pledge? If not, we must go, but we are both past the age when we can take up life anew. My property would, of course, be confiscated, and we should be penniless among strangers. I think they will respect the pledge, Philip replied. I assured them so solemnly that any breach of their promise would be followed by prompt vengeance upon themselves and their homes, that I feel sure they will not run the risk. Two or three among them might possibly do so, but the others would restrain them. I believe that you can safely return, and that, for a long time at any rate, you will be unmolested. Still, if I might advise, I should say sell your property as soon as you can find a purchaser at any reasonable price, and then move either to La Rochelle or cross the sea to England. You may be sure that there will be a deep and bitter hatred against you by those whose humiliation you have witnessed. Thank you. Thank you. I will follow your advice, Monsieur Fletcher, and I hope that I may ere long have the pleasure of seeing you, and of worthily expressing our deep sense of the debt of gratitude we owe you. Five minutes later the troop mounted and rode away, while Monsieur de Mureville, with his wife behind him, started for home. I hope, Francois, Darby said as they galloped off from the wood. But the next time I ride on an expedition, your kinsman may again be with me, for he has wit and resources that render him a valuable companion indeed. I had great hopes, even when I was in prison, and things looked almost as bad as they could be, Francois said, that Philip would do something to help us. I had much faith in his long-headedness, and so has the countess, my mother. She said to me when we started, You are older than Philip, Francois, but you will act wisely if in cases of difficulty you defer your opinions to his. His training has given him self-reliance and judgment, and he has been more in the habit of thinking for himself than you have. And certainly he has fully justified her opinion. Where do you propose to ride next, D'Arblay? For La Rochelle. I shall not feel safe until I am within the walls. Presidents of Parliament, judges of High Court, and dignified functionaries are not to be dragged from their beds with impunity. Happily, it will take them an hour and a half to walk back to the town, or longer, perhaps, for they will doubtless go first to their own homes. They will never show themselves in such sorry plight in the streets of the city where they are accustomed to lord it. So we may count on at least two hours before they can take any steps. After that, they will move heaven and earth to capture us. They will send out troops of horse after us, and messengers to every city in the province calling upon the governors to take every means to seize us. We have collected a good sum of money, and carried out the greater portion of our mission. We shall only risk its loss, as well as the loss of our own lives, by going forward. The horses are fresh, and we will put as many miles between us and Toulouse as they can carry us before nightfall. The return journey was accomplished without misadventure. They made no more halts than were required to rest their horses, and travelling principally at night, they reached La Rochelle without having encountered any body of the enemy. While they had been absent, the army of Condé and the admiral had marched into Lorraine, and eluding the forces that barred his march, effected a junction with the German men-at-arms who had been brought to their aid by the Duke Casimir, the second son of the Elector of Palentine. However, the Germans refused to march a step farther unless they received the pay that had been agreed upon before they started. Condé's treasury was empty, and he had no means whatever of satisfying their demand. In vain, Duke Casimir himself tried to persuade his soldiers to defer their claims and to trust their French co-religionists to satisfy their demands later on. They were unanimous in their refusal to march a step until they obtained their money. 
The admiral then addressed himself to his officers and soldiers. He pointed out to them that at the present moment everything depended upon their obtaining the assistance of the Germans, who were indeed only demanding their rights according to the agreement that had been made with them, and he implored them to come to the assistance of the prince and himself at this crisis. So great was his influence among his soldiers that his appeal was prompt and generally acceded to, and officers and men alike stripped themselves of their chains, jewels, money, and valuables of all kind, and so made up the sum required to satisfy the Germans. As soon as this important affair had been settled, the united army turned its face again westward, with the intention of giving battle anew under the walls of Paris. It was, however, terribly deficient in artillery, powder, and stores of all kind, and the military chests being empty, and the soldiers without pay, it was necessary on the march to exact contributions from the small Catholic towns and villages through which the army marched, and in spite of the orders of the admiral, a certain amount of pillage was carried on by the soldiers. Having recruited the strength of his troops by a short stay at Orléans, the admiral moved towards Paris. Since the commencement of the war, negotiations had been going on fitfully. When the court thought that the Huguenots were formidable, they pushed on the negotiations in earnest. Whenever, upon the contrary, they believed that the royal forces should be able to cross those of the admiral, the negotiations at once came to a standstill. During the admiral's long march to the east, they would grant no terms whatever that could possibly be accepted. But as soon as the junction was effected with the Duke Casimir and his Germans, and the Huguenot army again turned its face to Paris, the court became eager to conclude peace. When the Prince of Condé's army arrived before Chartres, the negotiators met, and the king professed a readiness to grant so many concessions that it seemed as if the objects of the Huguenots could be obtained without further fighting and the Cardinal of Châtillon and some Huguenot nobles went forward to have a personal conference with the royal commissioners at Longemont. After much discussion, the points most insisted upon by the Huguenots were conceded, and the articles of a treaty drawn up, copies of which were sent to Paris and Chartres. The Admiral and Condé both perceived that, in the absence of any guarantees for the observance of the conditions to which the other side bound themselves, the treaty would be of little avail, as it could be broken as soon as the army now menacing Paris was scattered. The feeling among the greater portion of the nobles and their followers was, however, strongly in favor of the conditions being accepted. The nobles were becoming beggared by the continuance of the war, the expenses of which had, for the most part, to be paid from their private means. Their followers, indeed, received no pay, but they had to be fed, and their estates were lying untilled for want of hands. Their men were eager to return to their farms and families, and so strong in general was the desire for peace that the Admiral and Condé bowed to it. They agreed to the terms, and pending their ratification, raised the siege of Chartres. Already their force was dwindling rapidly. Large numbers marched away to their homes without even asking for leave, and their leaders soon ceased to be in a position to make any demands for guarantees, and the peace of Longemou was therefore signed. Its provision gave very little more to the Huguenots than that of the preceding arrangements of the same kind, and the campaign left the parties in much the same position as they had occupied before the Huguenots took up arms. End of chapter 8. Recorded February 2008.